0: My name is Sarah Jennings, and I serve on the ministry council and also as the VBS coordinator. This is my husband, Chris, and my daughter, Kate. Our scripture reading today is found in John 13:1 and 17:20 20 through 26. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. It was just before the, the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And over in chapter 17, we find Jesus praying to his heavenly father. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Lake Avenue family. Aren't you glad you came to church today so you knew how to prepare for the 275th anniversary celebration of the Supreme Court this afternoon while you're eating your hot wings and uh, doing your uh, dip. uh, Say a prayer for the Supreme Court. It's an important organization, all kidding aside, with some very significant decisions that they're making during this term. So if there's something else that you're planning to watch as well, don't forget the Supreme Court uh, in (laughs) prayer. And speaking of prayer, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the awesome privilege, the mind-boggling privilege we have to call you our Heavenly Holy Father. And we don't take that for granted. And we're so thankful that you loved us so much that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior and coming King. You've also given us your Word. And we would ask that that Holy Spirit that Jesus promised here in the upper room that now abides with us and because of his gift and his love lives in us, would take this written word and make it a word. Let it come alive in us this day. And may the words of these lips and the meditations of our hearts somehow be used by your Holy Spirit to make a difference in us for your sake, that your kingdom might come and your will might be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. John 13-17 through 17 is one of my Favorite portions of scripture. I'm an educator and I see John 13 through 17 as as Jesus' last opportunity to prepare the disciples for some things that they weren't quite yet getting. They didn't quite yet understand. In some ways, uh, John 13 through 17 is what I've often called the cram for the final exam. Any good teacher will, before the final exam is coming, will sit the class down and say, now let me uh, share some things with you, and by the way, these will be on the final. And that's what he was trying to tell the disciples. That they were about to experience something that they really didn't yet fully grasp, even though for three years he had been telling them that he was going to come first as the Lamb slain from the foundation of time, so that he could come the second time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But they were not getting that. And so this, in essence, is what often is called for those of us in education when we have our last opportunity, our final lecture. Uh, One of the books that I had the privilege of editing recently in honor of Dr. Ted Engstrom, who was a member of this congregation and actively involved with World Vision for so many years, one of my mentors uh, in my career late in his life, was uh, a book that basically gathered kind of the last lectures of several leading uh, Christians today, asking them, what do you believe are the most important lessons that the next generation of Christian leaders need to understand? And so that's what Jesus was doing in this Upper Room Discourse. And it's interesting that it's all contextualized because you'd think in a cram for the final exam, there would be more emphasis on the what, when, where, and how. But really, as you read carefully through the Upper Room Discourse, the Upper Room Final Lecture, you find out that the focus is more about the who... And the why. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, one of the most learned men in the history of the early church, the New Testament church, would end up going from the what to the who very quickly by saying, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And in the disciples' minds, and in our minds today, we're always wanting to get questions answered the what, when, where, and how questions. But Jesus understands that the most important answer to those kinds of questions is not what, but who. And so he starts off his last lecture with this affirmation that having loved them, he was going to love them to the end. That it would be his love that ultimately would be the ultimate answer, the final answer, the only answer to every question that they would have as they would go about fulfilling their calling to be disciples in a fallen world and it's interesting that this upper room discourse ends in chapter seventeen those final verses in the high priestly prayer of jesus with him focused again on love god's love for him his love for the father that existed even before all of creation began did you catch that that before the world's were even created the father loved him and in him the Father loved us. And what he was praying is that we might experience that love and then share that love for one another, but most significantly be anchored by that love when the most significant, difficult questions of life would come. And so as uh, Dr. Waybright has been taking us through these, uh, this upper room discourse around the theme, Knocked Down But Not Out, is this wonderful illustration, this wonderful truth that in all that we will experience, what will hold us will be the inseparable, unending, eternal love of Jesus Christ for us. And so I want us to look at five basic things. But first of all, let's get kind of an overall theme, if we could. Uh, If I were to try and give this message a title, it would be something like Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. I love the old hymns of the church. Some of you may know that hymn. But here's my kind of supposition about the upper room discourse. In the upper room teachings, Jesus guarantees that when the various issues and challenges of life confront us, we could also add in there the questions, the unanswerable questions confront us, making us feel that we have nowhere else to turn, there we will experience his promise that at every end he will be there loving us too and through each end. So that's the overall theme that I want us to try and focus on, and just five concepts, and we won't have time to go into depth on each of them, but I want to touch more deeply on two or three as the Holy Spirit leads. In each of the services, this is the third service now, I kind of seek the Lord for um, where the emphasis should be and which syllable. And uh, so each of these emphases kind of change from service to service. But overall, th- there are just five observations about this unending love that Jesus has promised to love us to the end. Let's look at the first one. Here's the first promise, that when our work is over, when our vocational calling to serve Christ and our discipleship work ends, we will find that Jesus is the loving servant. Uh, John 13:17. the last phrase there in the 17th verse says this, Blessed are you who hear these words and do them. It's one thing to hear them. It's another thing to do them. And so Jesus emphasizes at the close of this uh, wonderful illustration of his servant leadership by washing the feet of his disciples, the importance of doing. But here's the reality. We can get weary in our doing, right? We can be weary in well-doing. We hope we're never weary of well-doing. But it's very easy, particularly for those of us who take seriously that we have been saved and left here in order to do the will of the Father. Jesus would emphasize that in his own teaching, in his prayer. He was here, he's come to do the will of the Father. And so essentially when we're exhausted by service, weary in well-doing, overwhelmed by the cost of discipleship, a little Dietrich Bonhoeffer there, one of my favorite theologians, worried we have labored in vain because little fruit seems evident, Jesus who has been there and done that, and by the way, has the scars to prove it. Jesus who's been there and done that, and has the scars to prove it, will enable us, even as the Apostle Paul said, to finish the course and keep the faith, because His greater love will never fail us. This was important for the the disciples to grasp at this juncture, because they were about to be launched into the same kind of ministry that Jesus was being launched into, but they really didn't get it, as I said earlier. They thought they were going to be the princes of a new kingdom that Jesus was going to set up. For some reason, they'd forgotten about Isaiah, where Isaiah said that when the Messiah would come, His first coming, He would come as the wounded lamb, as the sacrificial lamb. He would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and all of the weight of the sin would be laid upon Him, as it would be for the scapegoat driven into the desert, as was the Old Testament custom. And they just didn't get the fact that he was coming first in that capacity. As a matter of fact, what they were hoping is that he was going to come as he is prophesied in his second coming, as a king and lord. They had hoped somebody would come and liberate them from 300 years of darkness, from 300 years of oppression, from 300 years of being despised and rejected, from 300 years of being laughed at and mocked and oppressed from 100 plus years, almost 200 years of Roman oppression at that particular time. They wanted a king to deliver them. And throughout the three years that Jesus was with them, he had to keep reminding them that he didn't come to reign over and to rule over, but to serve. And so when he takes off his clothes and wraps a towel around his waist as he does in chapter 13 and washes the disciples' feet. He's trying to give them a visual lesson about what's really going to happen. And not all the disciples get it. There's a, this is a mixed bag class. Anybody who's taught understands that you have a variety of students in your classroom. A mixed bag. Some who get it, some who don't. Some who almost get it. Some who constantly are interrupting and still don't get it. And that was Peter. Don't you love Peter? I can just see him in the classroom. Here, Rabbi, Rabboni, my teacher, Rabbi, my teacher, the teacher, Rabboni, my teacher, is lecturing away, trying to give at his heart the the final lessons that it's all about who and your relationship to the who rather than getting answers to all the what's. And Peter keeps interrupting. The first major lesson, Peter says, you can't wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then he says, oh, okay, well, then give me a bath. Peter still doesn't get it. Jesus has to explain it to him again. A little bit later, he talks about the fact that uh, he's going to be betrayed. And and Peter sticks up his hand and says, Oh, 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 Lord, I'm not going to betray you. You can count on me. I'm going to be there. And Jesus says, Oh, Peter, 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 before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then he talks about the fact that it's going to be a difficult situation and, and, and he's going to uh, likely be confronted and, and taken away. And, and Peter jumps up and says, Absolutely not. I, I'll never leave you. I will be the one to defend you. And Jesus has to correct him again. And even after all of this teaching in the upper room discourse, as intense as it is, we see that Peter still has God in his mind that the kingdom is going to be established now. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the soldiers show up, Peter's the first one to draw a sword and hack off the ear of, of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And then he ends up denying Jesus three times. A little girl confronts him, and he runs off screaming like a little girl because he's afraid. He denies his Lord three times. And then he goes into a state of depression and hangs around the outer edges. And as you go to the, to the end of Matthew, you see him about ready to chuck it all. He didn't, he didn't realize that this thing of following Christ was going to be so costly, was going to be without any significant measurable reward in this life. And so he says, I'm going fishing. And up he goes back to Galilee, but there are three others that say, oh, no, you're not. You may go and fishing, buddy, but you're not going alone. We're going with you. And there, deja vu all over again. Out there, they catch nothing all night having fished. And just like the first time when Jesus called Peter, he calls him a second time by giving a miraculous draft of fishes. And Peter comes to himself and realizes it's the Lord. And he dives in and comes ashore. And Jesus begins this process, loving Peter to the end. You know the dialogue in the end of Matthew, don't you? Where the conversation between Peter and Jesus is, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Take care of those I'm going to entrust to you. And we're not sure if Peter is getting it just yet, but he finally does. On the day of Pentecost, he stands up. And I'm sure Jesus is in heaven with the Father saying, Yes! He got it. Because when you rehearse and work through Peter's sermon on that particular day, on the day of Pentecost, all because the promised comforter, we'll talk more about him in just a moment, had come and filled them and empowered them and enabled them, enlightened them. He stands up and gives this incredible declaration and everything that Jesus had been trying to teach him for three years everything that Jesus had been trying to emphasize in those chapters in the Upper Room Discourse, he gets. And if Jesus were grading, it would be A, plus, 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 plus. Yay, Peter! He finally got it. That Jesus came first to be a Savior. Now, why is that important? You see, in order for a king to exist, he has to have a kingdom. And in order for there to be a kingdom there have to be subjects loyal to the king. And in order for there to be subjects loyal to the king, the most loyal subjects are those who are born as citizens of that kingdom. So before Jesus could return as king of kings and lord of lords, he needed to birth a kingdom. You and I have been born into the citizenship of heaven We've been born again by the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus was first willing to come as a suffering Savior and open the door for us to become citizens of heaven. He would say often to them, My kingdom isn't of this world. They just didn't get it. They finally would on the day of Pentecost, where Peter declares, The one that you crucified was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. So often in our work for the kingdom, The things that God calls us to, we're not really prepared for what Jesus had told his disciples. Your following me is going to cost you. And at some point, it's going to cost you everything. You've got to be willing to pay the price. So often we're people that that think that following Jesus is just going to be one mountaintop experience to another mountaintop experience to another mountaintop experience. And then when we're in the valleys... We forget that what Paul declared, that we might know him in the power of his resurrection, hallelujah. But the greatest ways we know him in Philippians 3.10 is in the fellowship of his sufferings. That somehow it's in those darkest nights of the soul when nothing seems to be going right, when we don't have all the rewards and awards that we thought we were going to get. We'll talk more about some of those rejections as we go along here this morning, that we discover the fullness of who Christ is. It's only when we've exhausted our ministry does the love of Jesus come in in fullness and empower us and keep us to the end. I've often been tempted to complain about how underappreciated I am as a servant of God. You know, I've done this, and I've done that, and don't these people get it? And then I'm remembering ten lepers. Jesus, who is very God and very man, shows his very humanness in that particular story. When the one returns, and Jesus said, Weren't there ten that were healed? Where are the other nine? And the Holy Spirit speaks to me and said, You know, Jesus only got a 10% response. Why should you expect any better? (laughs) Why should you expect any better? And most of the time, those of us who serve the kingdom and serve people like you who are willing to serve the kingdom are blessed way beyond 10%. So I don't know where you are. If you're weary in well-doing, and perhaps for whatever reasons you're weary of well-doing, and you wonder, what's going on? to bring the joy, what's going to produce the fruit? It's the wrong question. It's who's going to produce the fruit. It's the one who loves you to the end. The second observation I have here in in this is that when you're uh, at wit's end, uh, Jesus becomes the counselor and comforter. You know, throughout the Upper Room Discourse, we have this uh, teaching woven through it um, about the Holy Spirit. So when we've exhausted our wisdom, when all of our experiences, skills, successes now seem insufficient, when our Lord's, uh, then our Lord's love-sent Holy Spirit abides as the ever-present tutor, counselor, and guide, pointing to the way, the truth, and the life, lovingly guiding us to the end. One of the greatest dangers we have in our walk with the Lord is to lean too heavily on past experiences and past successes. Often in my executive coaching of young leaders who have been on a promotional kind of of trek, trajectory, um, I'll have to warn them not to assume that because they've ridden in this rodeo before, they know how to ride this bull. Just because you've been successful in another setting, just because something has worked in the past, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work effectively because God is constantly doing a new thing. He's constantly working on new wine, and old wineskins will never do it. And so God, in his mercy, because he wants us to be effective and fruitful in the work we do, often will not allow what used to work to continue to work. And we'll be at wit's end. My goodness, this worked before. Yeah, I pulled it off here. I've managed this before. I've solved this kind of problem in this way before. And for some reason, it doesn't work now. And that's because he wants us to come to the end of ourselves in terms of reliance upon ourselves, upon our own wits, upon our own wisdom, upon our own experiences, because he wants to do a new thing. Don't you love the scripture that says that his mercies are new every morning? And if all you're doing is gathering up old mercies and old experience, you're just like those Hebrew children in the desert thinking they could store up manna from day to day. The manna was for today. And if you tried to keep yesterday's manna, it rotted, it didn't sustain. And so we have this wonderful promise that when we come to the end of our own resources, when every trick in the, in the book has not worked any longer, even though it worked before, we have a Jesus who loves us so much that he was willing to send us an eternal tutor. The truth of the matter is, I don't care how smart we are, we're all slow learners when it comes to discipleship. And we need a tutor, an abiding guide alongside of us to lead us into all truth and to remind us of the truth that he has given to us. And that's what Peter experienced, finally, on the day of Pentecost. Jesus, when he appeared in the upper room, breathed on them, and they received the Holy Spirit at that point. But the issue then was, when did they get all of the Holy Spirit? On the day of Pentecost, he was released in power. And Peter, who was a man of action, not necessarily a man of effective theological communication, declared because of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, because of the resource of the presence of the tutor, the counselor, the guide, the comforter, was able to declare truth like it's never been declared before or since with such power. The third thing about Jesus' lovingness to the end is this. When relationships end, Jesus is the vine. We have been When we've been unfriended, ignored, abandoned, when we've been cut off and cast aside, hated by the world and forsaken by those we thought would never leave us, the inseparable love of Christ holds us, and he holds us no longer as servants. I love this phrase in in John 15, no longer as servants, but as eternal friends. One of the things that Jesus had tried to warn them was that if they took seriously the challenge of ministering to a fallen world, they would be rejected. He tried to warn them that. They hated me, they're going to hate you, he said. Go through John 13 through 17 and see how often that theme reappears. He's trying to warn them. And saying, you know, if if you think you can be friends with the world system and somehow be applauded and appreciated and praised and celebrated by a world system that is contrary to the kingdom system, that I represent, then you're going to be sadly disappointed. Some of the worst pain the disciples would experience, as a matter of fact, Jesus would say that on occasion or two, you're going to have to leave family and friends and everything that you knew. The rich young ruler was going to have to give up everything that he had, all of his possessions, cut off all of his relationships in order to follow Jesus. And when relationships are broken... It's some of the greatest pain, I think, that we can possibly experience. When we feel broken off or cut off, much like a branch is severed from a tree, we lay there, slowly dying, developing scar tissue where we've been cut off, not nurtured, fearful that we'll never be loved again, fearful that there'll be no fruit of our lives. We have the promise that Jesus the master horticulturalist, the master vine dresser, will come along and he will, through the cutting and wounding process, graft us into the vine. Think about this for a moment. If you're into vine dressing at all or you're a horticulturalist or you prune your roses here in the Rose City, that in order for grafting to occur, there have to be two sets of cuts. There have to be cuts on the branch you want to graft in in order to cut it back so that the dead is removed until there's some life. And then there has to be a wound, a cut on the vine into which the branch is going to be placed. And then it has to be forcibly (laughs) held in place until finally the life of the vine flows in to the life of the branch and the two become one. The Bible says that he was wounded for our transgressions. And when we feel cut off and separated, when all of our friends have left us, and we realize that the arm of flesh will fail you, as the old hymn says, you dare not even trust your own, that Jesus himself will graft us in. And even though we've been separated, even though we've been abandoned, and I don't know what sense of broken relationship and, and unfriending and defriending you've experienced. Sometimes it occurs with the death of a loved one, a lifelong partner. Sometimes it occurs when a betrayal of a, of a parent to a child or betrayal of, of, a, of a husband to a wife or vice versa. Relationships, trust relationships have been broken. Those are deeply wounding experiences. And, and as a disciple of Christ, Jesus himself was rejected. Right? Man of sorrows, rejected. On the cross, he knew that all had abandoned him, that all had turned away. But he went to the cross anyway because he loved us. I shared in a uh, time or two uh, here at Lake and uh, a little of my own testimony. I, My dad uh, abandoned us, my sister and I, when we were nine. I was nine and she was six and then at age 13, my mom, who was faced with a lot of physical and emotional problems, uh, couldn't handle the pressure, and I came home after school and found my clothes on the front lawn, and the door locked, and I tried to get in, and she screamed through the door, you're, you're no blankety-blank good, you'll turn like, out like you're a drunken old man, I never want to see you again. And so at 13, I moved to the streets. And the wounding of that, it was bad enough when my dad left. He was basically saying, I don't care about you. I don't want you. I have no connection to you. But when my mother did the same thing, there was such a darkness that came into my spirit and over my soul. But fortunately, and this is the way Jesus loves us to the end, he basically incarnates himself again through people. So often, the grafting has to be done by someone committed to to that horticultural vine dressing process. And in my case, Jim and Marion Pointer, Poynter, Free Methodist missionaries to northern Canada, had come to our little hometown to minister to the Inuit Indians and, and to the lumberers and the gold miners in that community. They had had a ministry of taking in street kids. And during their years of ministry, they took in over 60 young men and women, many of them runaways, prostitutes, drug addicts, alcoholics that had nowhere else to go, all but one came to faith, and half of us are in some kind of vocational Christian service today. And Jim and Marion had the love of Christ alive in them, that they could take the wounded. As a matter of fact, in an official board meeting, this would never happen at Lake, but in an official board meeting of that church, they were asked to stop bringing those kinds of bums into the church. Stop doing that because we don't want these runaways like Dave Guardson to be negatively impacting our children, to have a negative influence on our teens. So please don't bring them in anymore. And so Jim and Marion left the ministry and went into full-time care of the worst, the most incorrigible people that the Children's Aid Society of Ontario could throw at them, and watch them come to Christ because they were grafted in. So I don't know what you're feeling today, what the nature of your own woundedness is in terms of separation, but I want to assure you, I have experienced it firsthand, that Jesus will love you at the end of those relationships, and He will love you through those relationships into what will be the eternal relationship with Him. You will be grafted in to the vine. A fourth thought here is that essentially at word's end, Jesus will become our intercessor. I love John 17. It gives us insight into what Jesus is now doing, that he's not just a historical presence in reality, but he's a, he's a present presence working on our behalf still. When there's nothing left to say, when we can't or are unable to pray, and all that seems to be left are unutterable groanings, Jesus intercedes at the Father's right hand, calling all of heaven to attend to our cries because he loves us to the end. In my own ministry, there have been a lot of times when I've been praying with people who cannot pray, for whatever reasons. There are no words that are sufficient. They don't feel they're worthy to pray because of what they've done in their lives or experienced. They're unable to pray because they've been so deeply wounded and hurt. They're unable to pray possibly because of their physical or mental condition. There's, there's nothing they can say. All that's left are groanings. And again, back to one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit takes our groanings, groanings that cannot be uttered, and translates them and brings them to the throne of God. And you know what you find at the throne of God? You find two people sitting there, two beings. One is God the Father, The Bible says the other is God the Son. And God the Son is sitting there at the right hand of God the Father, ever, I love that phrase, ever making intercession for us. You're wondering what Jesus is doing right now? He's taking your unutterable groanings, the stuff you don't know how to pray about, the wayward child you don't know how to pray for, the broken relationship you don't know what to ask God to do about healing the difficulty that you're facing in terms of your physical condition, the fear of your financial circumstances. You don't know how to pray. You've, you're, you're prayed out. There's nobody else left to pray. Good news is the best prayer in the universe is listening. And he's speaking into the ear of the Father because he promised in John 13 through 17 that whatever you ask the Father in my name, that will I do for you, that will that I will accomplish for you. And so Jesus is whispering, taking the unutterable and inexpressible groanings of our spirit when we know not what to pray or how to pray. And he's translating them into the ear of the Father. And listen to this, ladies and gentlemen, all of heaven is listening in. And when the King of kings and the Lord of lords speaks all of heaven jumps to attention. Think about this. It's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? That when we are unable to ask, unable to think, unable to declare, unable to intercede, God, through His Holy Spirit, is allowing Jesus to be our intercessor on our behalf. Aren't you glad when words end and the love of Jesus begins? When you have nothing left But the love of Christ and the promise that because he loves you, he's praying for you. And the last point here, quickly, is this one. At life's end or world's end, we're going to discover Jesus, the loving eternal redeemer and Lord. When the last end of life comes, we'll discover that Jesus will be all we need because Jesus will be all we have. His love will be enough. At that end, we'll experience the full truth that nothing was able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and we will hear, welcome home, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your salvation, all because Jesus loved us to the end. I'm uh, coming up on 70 quicker than I want to admit. I realize that there's more behind me and less in front of me than there's ever been. And we've experienced, uh, the Waybrights and Nancy and me, in terms of friends and family in recent months, uh, the death of many of our closest friends, people that we've been in pilgrimage together with, we've prayed for and walked alongside of. My work at uh, Maranatha is coming to a close in the next uh, 6 to 12 months or so as they get ready for their long-term headmaster. I had agreed to come on in a transition phase. and So I'm now at that point of thinking about, okay, In this capstone era, how do I make the best contribution to the kingdom? And I've discovered, based on uh, something that I felt the Holy Spirit said to me many years ago, that David, I want you to love me enough to serve me where I need you, where I need you. And so I've said to people when I grow up, I just want to be available, and I want to be faithful to those two things. And God's blessed these almost 50 years of ministry now in some amazing ways. We've done a lot of things. Some people think I have vocational ADD, and that may be true, but God in his mercy has used that to allow me to be um, someone who cradles and helps ministries take the next steps. And I don't know what that next step will be for Nancy and me, but I do know what the final step will be. There will come a day when all of the labor and work here will cease. I've often thought in these years as I creak and and, uh, and, and groan and, and have the back go out and all the other good things that accompany uh, getting older, that aging is God's gift to help us progressively let go of everything in this life until we finally reach the point where none of it matters and all that matters is Jesus. And we'll meet him there. My spiritual mom... I think I've shared this story with you. My spiritual mom, Marion Pointer, just a a war horse for the kingdom, was struck with pancreatic cancer, and the closing months of her life were brutal, incredibly painful. And I went by, I may have shared this with you at another time, please forgive the repetition if I have. I went by to visit with her in the closing weeks of her life, and I said, Marion, is everything okay with your soul? That's part of my theological tradition uh, in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. That's one of our greetings is everything right with your soul. And she said, Oh yes, David, it is. And even though she was in incredible excruciating pain, she said to me, I've learned the most important lesson of my spiritual journey. So great. What is it? She said, David, I've discovered this truth that Jesus will never be all I need until Jesus is all I have. And right now, Jesus is all I have. And David, it's enough. It's enough. When it's all said and done, we'll discover that Jesus said it and did it. When it all comes to an end, he who is both Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, will be there to greet us. And even though letting go of this life can be very, very difficult, psychologically, emotionally, Uh, relationship-wise, financially, so many things, as God progressively unsettles our nest, so we're ready to fly into the arms of Jesus. We have this truth, that in the end, He will love us, and He will be there to meet us. And so, let me say this to you in closing. If for whatever reasons you have not yet experienced the fullness of Christ's love, take heart and have hope. It's not yet His end. So at the end of work, wits, relationships, words, and worlds, you will find the loving Jesus. He has promised to love you to the end. And all of God's people said, Amen.